Well, good morning. As we continue to behold our God, if you would turn your Bible to John chapter 2. We're just going to be looking at a short little, what many consider a transitional passage this morning. Verses 23 to 25. Thank you, Adam, orchestra, choir, Heather, for leading us in worship this morning, preparing us for worship through the preaching of the word. One of the things that blesses me is to see the college students in our choir. Yeah, absolutely. And college students, there's, there's room for more. But... The last thing I was thinking about in college was church choir, and so you minister to me, but it's been a wonderful morning. Uh, We get to observe both ordinances today, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Can't get any better than that. Well, let's pray, and we'll get into our passage. Lord, thank you that we have beheld you this morning. We have beheld you in the face of your son, Jesus, and by the spirit of our Christ, may we behold you even more now as we consider this passage this morning in John 2. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. February the 20th, 2001, 20 years ago, or 21 years ago today, rather, uh, Attorney General John Ashcroft and FBI Director Louis Free announced that two days earlier, February the 18th, FBI counterintelligence agent Robert Hansen was arrested and charged with committing espionage by selling highly classified security information to Russia and the former Soviet Union. Now, at the time of his arrest, Hansen was covertly placing highly classified information at a site for pickup by a Russian handler. Just a few months later, on July the 6th, Hansen was sentenced to prison without possibility of parole. He is considered the most notorious, damaging spy in FBI and American history. But here's my point. He was the last person anyone would have expected. Uh, He was married uh, with six children. He had no alcohol or drug or gambling problems. He was outwardly a very religious man. He was a Roman Catholic, and he attended Mass, get this, every day of the week, seven days a week at 6.30 in the morning. In fact, uh, he made it his goal to get his co-workers into church themselves. In fact, he was an active member of Opus Dei, which is a well-known lay group within the Roman Catholic Church that centers on acts of charity, social service, and training in Catholic spirituality. Now think about this. 
for the vast majority of his 25 years in his service to the FBI, he was on the promotional track. Uh, he was highly regarded within the FBI. Now, this is the United States Domestic Intelligence and Security Service. But not even the FBI knew who he was. Not even the FBI knew what this man was doing. And yet, in all actuality, he was a sexual pervert, a sexual deviant, and the most notorious spy in the history of the United States. Hansen fooled man, but you can't fool God. And that is the central point of our passage today. In fact, uh, we're going to break this passage down into two points. And I receive help from 1 Samuel 16 to make this point. In 1 Samuel 16, it says, verse 7, The Lord sees not as man sees. The man, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the first thing we see in verse 23, we can only look on the outward appearance as humans. We can only look on the outward appearance. And notice what it says in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus, at the Passover feast. So what this tells us, it's connecting us to the previous passage. And so he was there at the Passover. That's when he, he brought in the cord, the whip of cord, and, and he began to turn over the, the tables, the money changers, and those selling the sacrificial animals. Well, when he was there, notice, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, many, doesn't tell us how many, but it appears at face value from the outward appearance of things, a revival is taking place right there at the Passover when Jesus was there to begin his ministry. Now, this is a summary response to Jesus' first encounter there, the many believed. In contrast to the hostility he saw when he began to turn over the, the tables, it says here, the many believed. But who are the many? It doesn't, doesn't tell us who the many are. But John is going to give us a personal illustration of one of those who believed in his name while he was there at the Passover. And we're going to look at him more intently next week. But notice at the end of verse 25, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man. So forget the chapter division. The chapter division wasn't there when John wrote this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs. And so remember in verse 23, they were believing in him because of the signs. And this is one of the men who saw the signs. 
He says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews, saw the signs that Jesus was doing and he, he recognized the power of God is on this man. And notice it says that Nicodemus perceived that Jesus was from God and that God was with him. Nicodemus had a very high view of Jesus. Nicodemus understood. Nicodemus had seen and Nicodemus believed all this. In his outward appearance, Nicodemus, representing the many, appears to be a believer in Jesus, as he believed in his name. And yet, and yet, that is not the assessment we see in verses 24 and 25. And so the first point is that we can only look at the outward appearance. But our second point this morning, the Lord looks on the heart. Look with me in verse 24. But, that's a fearful conjunction there. You would spell that word in English, D-E, but, de, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He didn't need anyone to tell him what these people were actually believing, what these people actually were in their hearts, because it says he knew what was in man. Now, I want you to see something. There is a wordplay that we miss in English. And I think the reason the translators changed the word here is just for the literary quality of things. But notice in verse 23, it says, many believed in his name. Notice that verb, believed. Well, that very verb is used in verse 24 when it says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. It's the same word. So you could literally translate this, many believed in his name, but Jesus did not believe in, him, in them. That's how you would literally translate that. He did not entrust himself to them. He did not believe in them. Now, what's going on here? Why does he not entrust himself to them? Well, the verse tells us, the passage tells us, because he knows what was in all people. And, and we've seen that already in John. And we're going to see that as we proceed through the Gospel of John. Remember uh, when Simon is brought to Jesus. And Jesus, just meeting him, says, your name is Cephas. He changes his name, which means Peter, rock. He knew that this man, based on his personality and his gifts, he was a rock. And so he changes his name. Jesus knew what was in Simon. Or how about when Nathaniel comes to him in John chapter 1? Jesus looks at him and he said, here is a man there, where there is no deceit, there is no guile. He had just met him. 
And yet he knew what was in this man's heart. In chapter 4, he's going to meet the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And he is going to tell her everything she had ever done. It's quite remarkable. In chapter 5, she's, he's going to speak about the, the, the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders of, of Israel. And he is going to tell them that the love of God is not in their hearts. He knows what's in their hearts. In John chapter 6, it's going to show us that he knew when he called the twelve that one of them was going to betray him. And yet he chose them anyway. He knew what was in Judas's heart. In chapter 8 of John, there's gonna, we're, we're going to see that uh, there, there were many who believed in him, but as it proceeds, it turns out he knows that these who had this superficial belief in him had murder in their hearts, and they try to stone him. Or how about chapter 13? When he tells Peter in the upper room, you are going to deny me three times, even before the rooster crows. And then in chapter 16, the night before the cross, he looks at his disciples and said, all of you will scatter. When they come and arrest me, all of you will scatter. He knew what was in their hearts. Now, a central point being made here in this passage is that the Son of God's knowledge of all people reflects the fact that he is God of very God. Only God knows what's in every human heart. Indeed, that's what Scripture affirms. First Chronicles 28, verse 9, for instance. The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And then there's a preacher in Houston that tells us that God knows your heart and he thinks that's good news. Well, let me just tell you, that's not good news. God knows our hearts. First Chronicles 28, Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. God knows what's in our hearts. John is telling us here that the Son of God knows what's in each and every heart of every person sitting here this morning. And notice what this text is telling us. He knows there's a kind of faith, a kind of belief that is not saving faith or saving belief. Uh, th there's a fascinating example of this. I touched on it a moment ago. In John chapter 8, verse 31, listen to these words. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, or believed in him, some translations read. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. He knew that they believed in him, but he says, here's what will evidence the fact that you're truly my disciples. You abide in my word. And to these very people, just a few verses later, 
He says to them in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. That's a remarkable passage in itself. He saw it and was glad. That's even more remarkable. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Remember those words to Moses when Moses says, what is your name? And the God at the burning bush said, I am that I am. Son of God is reflecting the fact that he was the one that was there at the burning bush. And these disciples, these people who had believed in Jesus just a moment earlier, picked up stones to stone him. They did not abide in his word. The word of God exposes what we really believe. There's a kind of faith that admires Jesus but doesn't worship him. There's a kind of faith that does not submit to his lordship. You may see him as fire insurance so that you, when you do what you do, you can have forgiveness, but you don't truly abide in his word. There's a kind of faith that does not see that Jesus is your all in all sufficiency and that you don't see that he's needed until it's time for him to take the will in times of crisis. There's a kind of faith that's non-saving that tips the cap to Jesus but does not bow the knee to Jesus. So Nicodemus, and I would venture to say Nicodemus had a remarkably high view of Jesus. We're going to see that even more next week. But as we're going to see, Nicodemus was not born again. That's the whole point of John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Now here's the question. It says they believed in his name. Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. So what is going on here? Well, John chapter 3 will show us that their, their superficial faith, their superficial belief in Jesus was not a regenerate faith. The faith of the new birth. But what criteria helps us to discern what a regenerate faith is. How do we know if it's genuine? And this is so very important because Jesus says that some people are like the, the one sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And so they have some kind of emotional experience. And they hear the word, and there's this superficial reception of the word. I, I saw it often when attending revivals growing up. Uh, you would see people respond immediately, and then a year later, uh, the FBI couldn't find them. 
Well, Jesus says in that parable in Mark 4, 17, they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises, they fall away. Because they have no root, when trials come, temptations come, when it gets difficult, when they realize that their earthly circumstances haven't necessarily improved, the struggles come and they fall away. So how can we tell if our faith is legitimate? Maybe it's the most important question that can be asked in the Bible Belt, where cultural Christianity has abounded for many decades. Well, I have time to mention three. The first, one must have an evangelical understanding and confession of the gospel. Now, what do I mean by evangelical understanding of the gospel? Well, this person recognizes that that Jesus didn't come primarily to make my life comfortable. That Jesus didn't come just to, to give me what I want. To help me make the ball team. To help me get into this school. To help me marry that person. He came to deliver me from the guilt, the enslavement, the penalty of sin. So the person who's truly saved has an evangelical understanding and confession of the gospel. This person believes that Jesus is my savior, not my life coach. And not my grandfather there to spoil me. That Jesus Christ has taken the guilt, he's taken the judgment that I deserve and in his resurrection and in his giving me the spirit, I have been delivered from the penalty and the power of sin. That is the first criterion for one who has truly been saved, has saving faith. The second, and this is something that can be measured over time, the criterion of perseverance. Now let me speak to this a moment. Our perseverance is not what keeps us saved. Our perseverance is the evidence that we were truly saved. God preserves those who are truly his. God preserves those who've been born again. You can't be unborn again because our new birth is grounded by the resurrection of Christ. In order for us to lose our new birth, Jesus would have to be unresurrected. And he will never be unresurrected. He is seated seated at the right hand of the Father and nothing can dethrone him. And so God preserves those who are truly his. But one of the evidences that he's preserving us is that we are persevering in the faith. By faith. For instance, in Colossians 1, Paul says, You were, speaking to our previous condition, alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. It's a tough place to be. Yet now he has reconciled you through the body of Christ's flesh through death. If indeed you continue in the faith. That's an interesting phrase there. If indeed you continue in the faith. 
Or how about this? Hebrews chapter 3. We have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's the evidence. We hold it to the end. Conversely, when someone fails the test of perseverance, their falling away testifies. Listen, 1 John 2, that they did not really belong to us. They did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. They were like the stony ground faith that emerged quickly but had no root. The third criterion is the genuine new birth produces genuine repentance. And the barriers to repentance vary greatly from person to person. So, for instance, one person, like the rich young ruler, what's his barrier to repentance? What's his barrier to God? Well, he has the idol of material things. And so Jesus comes to him and says, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Because that was the barrier between him and God. Or how about the lawyer in Luke chapter 10? It appears that the lawyer is racist. It appears that the lawyer has some kind of ethnic vainglory, and he doesn't want to mess up his life by engaging his neighbor. So Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. To teach this lawyer, he must repent of that. Or perhaps to others who are trusting in their own righteousness, that somehow they believe God's going to be impressed in that day. He tells the story of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple to teach them that God is not impressed with your self-righteousness. It is filthy rags. Or maybe there are some, like Peter, who has to forgive in order to receive forgiveness. Those are issues. What's common to all of these accounts is that Jesus has the unerring ability to get to the heart of what stops a person from submitting to God. All of us have these idols that are in our way. For one, it may be materialism, like the rich young ruler. For another, it may be self-promotion or self-preservation, like the lawyer. Or for another, it may be that religious arrogance gets in the way of true repentance. Or maybe, it just may be, there's this in you, a nurtured bitterness towards someone who has wronged you, where you find it impossible to forgive. And Jesus says, you want forgiveness, you better be one who forgives. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. In every case, the proper Christian confession is Jesus is Lord, but those particular sins that defy his lordship vary from person to person. Varies. 
And Jesus sees through this. He knows all this. He knows where all of our idols are. And he focuses in each individual case on those particular idols that keep you from submitting to him. And so he may say uh, to someone uh, like the Samaritan woman, go and call your husband and bring him to me. That may be a message that the rich young ruler doesn't need to hear. He may say, sell all that you have. That may be something that the, the, the Samaritan woman doesn't need to hear. But when he tells her, go and call your husband and bring him here, it's exactly what she needed to hear. Unfortunately, one of the horrible aspects of sin is not that just that we're blind, but that we being blind imagine that we see. That's one of the horrible effects of sin. Most of us are a bit like the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, a remarkable writer, won many, many awards. The Nobel Peace Prize he won several times. But in his book, Intellectuals, Paul Johnson says, and he supports this, Leo Tolstoy was a moral monster. And yet, Leo Tolstoy, in his, di uh, his diary at the age of 25, writes this, I have not yet met a single man who was morally good as I, and believe that I do not remember an instance in my life when I was not attracted to what is good and was not ready to sacrifice anything to it. And that's why it's so important to learn what Jesus knows about our hearts. It's so important. And the only way to do this is to examine Scripture. So I'm going to go through this quickly. Let's consider the pervasiveness of our sin. The, the, the Scripture teaches that there is no aspect of our being that has not been affected by sin. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Boy, that's strong. And he's not writing there to a particularly uh, uniquely sinful group of people. That is a carte blanche statement that describes humanity. The heart is deceitfully wicked. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that our understanding is darkened by sin. And therefore, we are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in us due to the hardening of our hearts. That is our condition. It's not flattering. As a result of that, because of the will, is, it always follows the mind, our wills are corrupted. Now, we, we do have the capacity to act freely according to our wills, but our wills always follow what we truly believe and what we truly love and what we're truly trusting in. And Paul says, in our natural condition, Romans 3, no one seeks after God. There are, the only seeker in Scripture, by the way, is Jesus, who came to seek and to save that which is lost. Or how about the fact that the scripture describes even all the parts of our body 
corrupted and our organs corrupted by sin. And so our eyes and our ears are fallen. In Mark chapter 8, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Even our eyes and ears are corrupted by sin. How about our foreheads of all things? Isaiah says, our foreheads are like brass. What do you think he means by that? We don't receive the word of God. We are stubborn. We are obstinate to the things of God. Even our hands are weak. Hebrews 12 says, lift your drooping hands. Even our feet are affected by evil. Scripture says that our feet run to evil, Proverbs 1. They turn to evil, Proverbs 4. They're swift to, sh to uh, shed blood, Romans 3. Even our necks are affected. We are stiff-necked, Acts chapter 7. And our necks are outstretched. So what does it mean to be stiff-necked? Again, we're stubborn and our necks are outstretched, which means we are proud as peacocks. We are prideful. How about our emotions? Acts 13 says we rejoice in wrongdoing. Many of us are entertained by things that are so egregious Jesus had to die for them. We rejoice in our wrongdoing. Even our knees aren't immune. Hebrews 12 says strengthen your weak knees. I think that's speaking about someone who, has, who lacks moral courage. Again, these are all metaphors, but it's speaking to the pervasiveness of our sin. And our tongues are a mess. Our tongues are absolutely a train wreck. They flatter, Psalm 5. They boast, Psalm 12. They slander, Psalm 15. And they deceive, Romans 3. Just listen to the conversations that people have. You rarely hear praise. You rarely hear thanksgiving. But what you do hear is gossip. What you do hear is slander. What you do hear is complaints, complaints and self-pity and self-praise. Now, why would I say all this? Why is this so important to see? Again, this Houston preacher says, we don't need to hear about sin. We already know we're sinful. No, we don't. We all have an exalted view of ourselves like Leo Tolstoy. So why is it important that we hear about our sin? Because we have to understand the bad news in order to embrace the good news. And there is good news. Uh, journalist Malcolm Muggridge, his conversion is a case in point. Remarkable conversion. He was working as a journalist in India. And one day he, he went into a river and he saw this Indian woman at a distance who was bathing. And so lustful desires took over and he began to swim towards that woman. All the while hearing his wedding vows in his mind. But he died to them and he kept swimming. And as he got close to this woman, she turned around and she was a leper. And here's what he writes. She grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. And his first response was to accuse her. What a dirty, lecherous woman you are. 
But then it occurred to him that it was not the woman who was lecherous. It was his own heart. And Malcolm came to see what the Bible says about the human heart. In fact, it's that very thing that Jesus knew about us and why he did not and does not entrust himself to men. But it does not mean he abandoned us. That's a whole different issue. He did not abandon us. He did not entrust himself to us, but he did something better. He committed himself for us. And that's the gospel. Not because he believed in us, what's there to believe in? But because he loved us. He loved us. But that commitment, that love would cost him his life. It would cost him his life. Instead of we who are more like Robert Hansen than we are God taking our just punishment, the one who knows our sinful hearts took it for us. That's the gospel. John, Jesus responded to the wickedness, to the knowledge of our own rebellion by dying for it. That's the gospel. C.S. Lewis says Christ died for men precisely because men are not worthy to die for. To make them worth it. He died knowing the full truth of your heart. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? And that's what we celebrate at the table. And so as we come to the table this morning, what a glorious thought that even though you're the only human who knows how vile your heart is, some of the thoughts you have, the motivations you have, the desires you have, the things you say, the things you do when no one's watching, you have a Savior who knows all that and took it into account when he took the cross for you. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.